So yeah, we're going to be diving into what does it mean to be a biblical woman. Um, but I wanted to start by giving a um, little context to my story. Um, I'm a pastor's wife. I homeschool our three kids and stay home, but this is so against what I thought my life would look like prior to this season. So I was raised in a home that was kind of gender blind. Um, It's not that I didn't think about differences between boys and girls, it's just I didn't think much about it at all. Um, I remember thinking not that I want to be a wife and a mom growing up, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And so... uh, You can imagine my surprise when, instead of going into um, med school and the psychiatry route, I felt like God was leading me towards biblical counseling, and I went to seminary. And in my marriage and family counseling class, there were women that were talking about how they gave up promising careers because it was detrimental at the time. They couldn't do it all. They couldn't do it all with their family, and it was hurting them, and so they gave it up. And I was inwardly offended. I felt like this was a step back for women. I felt like, um, I felt hurt (laughs) on on behalf of women. And so to see me in this stage now, I would have been offended at myself. I'm not saying that you have to be a homeschool mom who stays home in order to be a biblical woman. That's not going to be our end goal. But if that's where you're coming from, from the spectrum of feminism and I should be able to do everything men can do and more, I understand 100% because I was there as well. But for maybe some of you, you come from a context of, um, we have a lot of transplants here, more traditionalism, where you you think of potlucks and quilting and cooking when you think of biblical womanhood because that's kind of what you were raised with, with quiet and gentle spirits and prayer meetings and you know, potluck kind of things. And you don't even know why, but you think about that kind of context. Um, as we start off, I want to give two disclaimers to, uh, to start us off. One, um, have grace with one another. We are all coming at this from such, different, from such different spectrums. There will be some in this room who call themselves feminists and who have marched in the marches and done all the things, and that is strongly how they identify. And then there will be the opposite spectrum of traditionalism, where you grew up with a Southern culture, and that idea is offensive to you. So we all are here because we want to know what the Word of God has to say about this topic, and so have grace with one another, recognizing all kinds are here, right? Uh, Secondly, biblical. We want to be biblical in this time. I don't want you to leave thinking primarily what Kristen has to say about this, but what does the Bible have to say about femininity, about biblical womanhood, about the Word of God, right? And so the, God, the Word of God, the Bible is our foundation. It is what we are basing all of this on, okay? So also, I'm going to be using a lot of content from these different Bible studies. So if this is a topic that you want to learn more about, this is, ignore the kind of old school design, but it's a great study. It's on uh, biblical womanhood. This is Mary Cassian and Nancy, Nancy Lee DeMoss before she got married. There's a second version. Um, There's also a TGC course on biblical women. There's a lot of great resources available if this is something that you want to dive into in greater depth. So um, here's how we're going to outline our time today. We're going to start with defining our terms. Where are we going? What, What is this? What is biblical womanhood? And on your handouts, there are spaces for you to fill in the blank for two reasons. One, to keep you awake. It's early Saturday morning. And I know I can get tired at this time of day. I am tired at this time of day. So to help you stay awake just by writing things down. 
Um, there's some fill in the blanks that I'll tell you as we go through it. Secondly, if there are notes that you want to go back to, write them down. It's a very simple outline for that reason. Just write whatever is helpful for you. But um, the first section on that is going to be defining terms about biblical womanhood. We're going to break it down. Um, so we're going to start with defining terms. Then we're going to talk about why does this even matter? Why does it matter? Why are we having four weeks to talk about this this summer? And we're going to talk and delve into the idea of a history of feminism within America. Where do we all come from? What are we influenced by without even knowing it? Um, and then we're going to go into what is God's design for femininity, for biblical womanhood. And in light of that, what is our highest calling as women? So first off, what is biblical womanhood? We're going to break it up. Biblical or Christian means in accordance with the Bible. So again, we believe that the Bible is our authority. It tells us not only how to know God, but also how to live lives that honor him. And so to be biblical, we want to live in accordance with the word of God. As Christian women, we have been saved by Jesus. We've repented of our sins. We've put our trust in him. And now we want to live lives that honor him. So that's the first fill in the blank for you. The second one, womanhood. So sadly, we live in a world where this is no longer... Um, commonly agreed upon. So you ask any person on the street, I actually just watched, there was a documentary that came out recently called What is a Woman? And this guy went around talking to people on the street, he talked to people, um, medical professionals, to politicians, and in general, the idea of what is a woman was really hard. Nobody could answer the question without using a circular definition, meaning they would say, a woman is someone who identifies as a woman. And he would press in and say, well, what is that? What is a woman? And they would say, it's just someone who identifies as a woman, you know? The official definition of a woman is an adult female woman. Um, that's how biologically we would define that. But again, we are in a world that constantly is debating these terms of gender, sexuality. And so, but as Christians, we believe that God created two genders, male, female, he did not do this on accident. He is not gender blind. It's not an accident that every person in this room has two X chromosomes, right? We are all this way on purpose. Um, and while we are equal in value and worth with men, we are different in roles. That's what we're going to talk about a lot next week. Um, so notice, though, that we didn't earn either one of these titles or descriptions, right? We didn't earn the fact that we are Christians. God saved us by his grace. We didn't earn our gender. God chose us that way from birth. These are all gifts from God. And so we're going to define together biblical womanhood as, for your next fill in the blank, uh, the character of a woman who lives in accordance with God's word. If you want, you can say the character of an adult female, you know, <laughs> uh, adult female, um, adult human female who lives in accordance with God's word, if you like, but um, that's what we're going to define biblical womanhood as. So, why does this matter? Why are we having four weeks of summer dedicated to this? And again, we might have the full spectrum represented here from people who have been primed thinking about this question. You have been wondering, why did God create me this gender? Why, why, why are there only men pastors at this church? Why is this kind of the social norms? Or you might be really fresh like I was growing up. You've never really thought about this. It's never really concerned your life. Um, so again, I want to take a minute to brainstorm. I'm giving you stalling time uh, to think through why does this matter? At least three people thinking through uh, why does it matter that we spend a couple of weeks talking about biblical womanhood? 
great answers. And, and the truth of the matter is, this might matter slightly differently for each one of us because of our different contexts, but those truths all remain, right? That we are living in a culture as, like the definition, adult human females, right? If you want to live in accordance with God's word. And so I'm going to give you three reasons why this matters. Um, and those are going to be the next fill in the blanks for you. So um, the first reason that this matters is because we want to know God's word. In God's word, he, God will constantly, all of God's word is helpful for, for us. It's helpful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Every single word is helpful. And at times, God will sometimes give specific instructions to us by our gender, right? So think of it like this. If you were to receive a letter from your dad who is traveling, he went on a trip, and he's writing a letter to you, and he says this. He says, to my dear family, uh, here's what's going on in the, on my trip. Here's my update on work. How's everything at the house? And then he talks to your mom for a second, and he says, to my wife, and he gives her some specific words. And then he says, to my daughter. You would kind of perk up a little bit, right? You would want to know, what does my dad have to say to me? Is he telling me to do something? He's asking how I'm doing. You know, you would have a special attentiveness. And in the same way, all of Scripture is helpful to us. All of it is meaningful, even if it is written to men. But at the same time, there is also gender-specific commands that we want to know about, right? A.W. Tozer says it like this, that the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. And so if we want to know God, we need to know his word because God speaks through paragraphs and sentences and syllables of scripture. That is how he speaks to us. And we want to know him. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so um, one reason why it matters that we talk about this is because we want to know his word. The second reason is we want to obey his word, right? So Matthew 28 says that we are to make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, all of it. And some of it is gender-specific, thinking about what we're going to talk about next week with, with Titus 2, Titus 2 being older women to younger women. Um, that is gender-specific, and so part of being able to fulfill the Great Commission is knowing what is, how to obey it, and part of that is gender-specific. 1 John 5.3 says it like this, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So if we love God, we want to obey him, Right? So um, if you're in the kids' ministry, if you volunteer for kids' ministry, in the email that Karina sends out, there's this quote by Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary to Ecuador and um, had a really difficult life. She went to minister to unreached people groups and went with a husband. Um, and her husband, the man that she, that she went with, um, was killed by the people they were trying to serve. She had a child at the time. They had a young baby. And... Instead of leaving, she went and she lived among her husband's killers, and many of them were saved. Um, she came back to America eventually, and she married again, and her second husband died. And then later in life, she married again, and she got Alzheimer's. She had a very, very difficult life, but she was a phenomenal writer and a great witness um, to what it looks like. She wrote this book called Let Me Be a Woman. And it's a phenomenal book, and uh, one of the ways that she talks about femininity is this. The fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian, but the fact that I'm a Christian makes me a different kind of woman. 
What does that mean? That means the fact that I am a woman doesn't make me lesser than. It doesn't make me a lesser than Christian. It doesn't make me, you know, second state, second peer, second level or anything. Um, I'm equal in worth with my brothers in Christ. And the fact that I'm a Christian is going to change the way that I think about my sexuality, about my gender, about my femininity, about my womanhood, right? Um, so that's the second reason. The third reason is so that we are not led astray by culture. Uh, if we don't have biblical convictions about something, we are naturally, human nature, going to go with what's common around us. We will 100% follow culture unless we have convictions to do otherwise, right? So this is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. You're getting a lot of bad things, right? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So it's talking about Paul is here saying, in later times, such as now, the world is going to be super messed up. There's going to be a lot of bad things happening. We just heard a long list of that. And there will be people who come in and try to deceive us, who don't preach the word of God, but treat, preach other things. And there will be weak women who believe them and who follow them, who are, it says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins, but led, a, led astray by various passions. We don't, I don't want to be a weak woman, and I don't think anyone here wants to be a weak woman. I would rather be a woman like Romans 12 talks about, which is to be conformed to the, not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of my mind so I can understand what is God's will, what is perfect, acceptable, and good. Um, so the third point, if we don't know what God's word says about femininity, it's going to leave us vulnerable, we need to know, especially now, even a few years ago, you know, this wasn't as hotly debated, but today, uh, as things relate to gender, things are constantly changing. Susan Hunt, who wrote a book, uh, lots of books on this as well, is a great author. She said, uh, not knowing God's design for women leaves us open to the attack of the enemy. So we want to be firmly rooted in the word of God. Paul says in Colossians 2 that we are to be rooted and built up in Christ, not being held captive to philosophy and empty deceit. But as a culture, we are deceived. So if we don't know what the Bible says about this, we will be, we will be deceived. So in light of that, I wanted to talk for a couple of minutes about our specific culture, which is the context that we live in America and the history of feminism. So um, if you don't really have much understanding of this, like I didn't growing up, feminism is basically the belief that there should be equality of the sexes. So as it relates to worth between men and women, for sure we agree. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God. Just because God is a he doesn't mean that he prioritizes or values or loves men more, right? Bless you. Um, but the problem is because of the fall, like Chris did such a good job on Sunday talking about this with Genesis 1 through 3, that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, it affected not just our bodies, we die, 
now, we all will die, but it also affected every part of us, our relationships, our minds, what we think about, our hearts, what we are attracted to and consumed by. And so it even affects um, what we value and how we pursue things. So in light of that, a quick history of feminism in America. So sociologists say that there are at least three waves of feminism. Sometimes people say four, five, six, you know, but we're going to talk about the three most commonly agreed upon waves. Um, since the 1900s, uh, the first one, the first wave is going to go back to the early 1900s, 1848 to 1920. In your notes, you have like just a little space, any, any space that you want to write notes um, on this that you can go back and look later. But um, so first wave of feminism, this is when women were lobbying for the right to vote, the right to have credit, the right to own property, all things that I think we're really thankful for today, that I am thankful that I can own a home, have a credit card. Um, but the context of this, so America was founded upon freedom and democracy. Um, and when, back when those days were happening, a lot of people were living on farms, right? And so each household got one vote. But during the age of industrialism, men started going off to work and getting money in their respective workplaces. And sometimes they were spending it on alcohol, on brothels, but women were staying at home. And now they wanted to write to have a say into their communities, right? They were seeing what was going on with their men, they were seeing poor working conditions, they were seeing child labor problems. They wanted a say. And so during this stage, the first stage of feminism, the first wave, we also see, we see a little bit of a breakdown of the family, but more than that, there were some really great benefits. I know we're all very thankful for, for some of those, um, those things that the women lobbied for. The second wave of feminism, I think, is what we traditionally think of when we think of feminism. We think of the 1960s uh, to the 1980s. And during this time, there were some also, there were some great advancements for women. A raising awareness about um, domestic violence was one of them. Um, equal work, equal pay for equal work. During this time, phrases such as police officer became used instead of policeman. So this idea um, again, good and bad, but some of these, some of the benefits, but ultimately underlying it was I should be able to define who I am. No one should be able to tell, tell me who I am except for me, not my husband, not society, not even God. So some of the factors that led into the second wave of feminism, uh, World War I and World War II had just ended, right? And so during the wars, women had been in the factories, working men had been off at war, and then they came home. And so now, men were working in the factories and women were at home, but things had changed. Things had changed for the women, things had changed at home. There was the advancement of the TV, of washing machines, of things that made life easier at home. And so uh, what used to take, I lived overseas for a couple, of day, a couple of years, and I know it takes forever to, to wash your clothes without a washing machine, but now it's quick, it's simple. Um, and so that was one of the factors that had led to these conversations. There was also a big emphasis on dual standards. So men could go off and have somebody on the side, but women were supposed to be chaste, you know, a leave it to beaver kind of femininity. And women said, that's, that's not fair. Um, there were a lot of authors that were writing about this at the time. Um, Simone de Beauvoir, a French name, I cannot say it. She wrote a book called The Second Sex. And then Betty Friedan wrote Feminist Mystique which condemned the role of the homemaker. She said, this is, it's a horrific. And here's her quote. This is her goal in writing this book. She said that she wanted to create a new religion, a pattern by which all women now must live. So this book sold 3 million copies, was a huge success 
in terms of, of uh, book sales. And women were starting to get very discontent, and they said, we want to be able to define ourselves again. However, we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to work if we want, to have reproductive freedom, to be independent and autonomous. And so, again, some of these are good things, awareness of domestic abuse, obviously, but within all of this, we're seeing no mention of God. We're seeing no mention of, who does God want me to be as a woman? What does his word have to say about any of this? It was rather, let's destroy the systems of power, Let's remove any differences between men and women. Let's create independence and autonomy for women. And so that bled into the third wave of feminism. Some people would say we're still there. Some people say, again, fourth, fifth, or sixth. But again, this is going to advance the ideas of independence and autonomy. It's going to focus a lot more on sexual freedom. Women can wear whatever they want, sleep with whoever they want, which ironically is very pleasing to a lot of the men in the society. But this is going to also create some conflict between the different waves of second wave and third wave feminists. There can be conflict even there. So a lot of us have been raised within this context, and we don't even know it. Like I said at the beginning, I thought I can do anything a boy can do, except I can do it better, right? I wasn't thinking about differences. I was thinking about I can do just as much, if not more, than the men or the boys. Um, not trying to find my identity or worth in the Lord, but in comparison to the men around me, or the little boys, rather. Um, but when we try to find our worth or identity in anything apart from God, we're going to be disappointed because God did not make us as men. God made us in his image, Imago Dei, as women. And so our goal in this time is not to go back to a leave it to beaver. You know, I have my polka-dotted apron and beautiful tablecloths. That's not the goal. The goal is to say, what does God's word have to say about our femininity, about our biblical womanhood? So if anybody has a Bible, I would love if someone could read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We are going to transition into what is God's design for our gender. And while you're looking that up, um, we're going to start with Genesis 1, 1, right? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a book about him. This is his rules, his design. We live for him. We live to enjoy him and to know him. And so this is the context for which we are going to try to figure out what is God's design for gender. So uh, someone, whoever has it first, will read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Okay, so when we're looking at what does God have to say about our gender, about us as women, we're going to start with the Bible from the beginning with Genesis 1. And it says in these verses that God said this, let us make man in our image. Again, Chris set us up so well by talking about these chapters on Sunday. But God is going to make male and female in his image, Imago Dei, and he is going to give them dominion over the animals of the earth. He's going to create two genders. And these two genders are going to reflect the unity, unity and diversity of the Godhead. And he gave us this command, right? Be fruitful and multiply. We are not going to have the conversation about how babies are made, but let's just say you need both men and women to fulfill this command. It is a two-gender uh, fulfillment here. And then God is going to talk in greater detail in Genesis 2 about how he made man and woman. So in chapter 2, we're going to read that. You can go back and read further at home, but God made man. He told him to keep the garden and to work it. He told Adam not to eat the fruit. And he said this. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper 
suitable for him. Who did he make? He made Eve. But think about it. God could have made anything or anyone, right? He could have made another animal. He could have made another man as a friend. He could have made an iPhone for infinite entertainment, but he made a woman, right? Elizabeth Elliot, again, a wonderful writer, uh, said it like this. God could have given Adam another man to be his friend, to talk and walk and argue with if that was his pleasure. But Adam needed more than companionship of animals or the friendship of a man. He needed a helper, specifically designed and prepared to fill that role. It was a woman that God gave him, fit, suitable, entirely appropriate for him, made of his very bones and flesh. So who did God make first? Adam. And woman was made as his helper. Good. So we're going to talk more about this idea of helper in week three because I know some of you probably are naturally cringing right now. That word helper has bad connotations. Um, but for now, I'll just leave it with this, that the word helper is not a word of weakness. In Scripture, God is called the helper, that same Hebrew word, over and over and over again. I think it's over 50 times. And so to be called a helper is to be called like God. I would not call God weak, and this is not a weak word or a weak term. So we'll talk about more, that more in the later weeks. But also during week three, we're going to talk more about how we relate to the men around us. And this is laying the foundation for that. So we're not going to go into that now, but for now, on your handout, I would like to give you the definition of complementarianism and egalitarianism. So complementarianism basically means that men and women are equal in being, but assigned different, equally valuable functions in God's kingdom. So men and women are equally, equal in being, but assigned different equally valuable functions in God's kingdom. That's at Grace Church what we believe, and we're going to talk about why during the third week. This is contrasted with egalitarianism, which basically says there is no legitimate difference in role and function between men and women in the home or in the church, at least not one that allows for spiritual leadership of men. So again, uh, there's no legitimate difference of role and function between men and women in the home and in the church, at least not one that allows for male spiritual leadership. So those definitions are from Lig Duncan and Susan Hunt. And again, we're going to go back to that. We're going to talk about that in depth. So if that is interesting to you, that'll be week three. But um, for now, do you need those definitions again? Was that too quick? Yeah? Okay. One more time. Complementarianism is the belief that men and women are, are equal in being, but assigned different, equally valuable functions in God's kingdom. Egalitarianism means that there is no legitimate difference of role or function between men and women in the home and in the church at least not one that allows for male spiritual leadership. So, as we go back to Genesis, we're going to know, as Chris said in the first couple of chapters, Adam and Eve will disobey God, right? They'll eat of the fruit, they'll be cast from the garden, but before they go, God is going to cover them with an animal sacrifice, you can imagine, right? They've never seen blood because there's been no death. And God sheds the first 
animal. He kills the first animal. There's the first blood, and he covers them. He provides a covering over their nakedness. Adam is going to name Eve life giver because she will be the mother to all the living. And God is going to give this promise. He's going to say that through Eve, through the mother to all the living, is going to come one who will destroy the serpent and who will destroy the power of sin and death. So that is a little bit of God's design. Again, we're going to talk more. But in light of this, what is our highest calling as women? Um, During Mother's Day, you might hear things on the news like advertisements that say, motherhood, the greatest calling of all. Motherhood, the greatest gift. There's a Cherokee proverb that says it like this. A woman's highest calling is to lead a man to his soul, to unite him with his source. Her lowest calling is to seduce, separating man from his soul and leaving him aimlessly wandering. So our highest calling being rooted with men or with our children or with how successful we are at work, how clean of a house we have. Um, just to make sure we're still awake, uh, what are some other ways that women can find, places that women can find identity or worth? You're going to fill in the blank. Life is important, or I am important because, why? What are some places women can find identity or worth? What's that? How we look. How we look, mm-hmm, absolutely. Three people. How much you're needed. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Am I serving enough? Do people need me? (laughs) How smart you are. That's a good one. That's good. We're going to brainstorm more in our discussion times of that and think through even ways that we can believe some of these lies. But ultimately, in Scripture, we know that our identity is not based on how needed we are, how we look, how smart we are whether we are good at our jobs, whether we're bad at our jobs, whether we're moms or wives, any of that. Our identity is found because we are made in God's image. We are, if you're a Christian, you are God's child. Uh, You are a child of the creator, and your life is not valuable because you're married or because you have kids. Your identity is rooted in him. So Isaiah 43, 6 through 7 emphasizes this point, and it should be in your handout, so you don't have to look it up, but can someone read that? Good. So verse 7, why were we created? Everyone who is called by my name, who I created, what? For God's glory. Our purpose in life is for God's glory, not our own, not in what we can do or not do. It's for God's glory, which means if we never get married, if you're bad at your job, your house is a mess, all of those things, your identity is not rooted in that, and you don't have to start to have purpose until those things happen. You don't have to wait until you're married to have purpose or wait until you have kids to have purpose. It starts now. So three application points for what this would look like to be women who are rooted in the word, who live in accordance with the word. The first one is similar to before, that we would know God's word. We were created to know God, to glorify him, to enjoy him. And as we've already talked about, this comes through knowing his word. The most influential practices in my life that have grown me and shaped me have been prayer and reading of the word. And 
Every person in this room is a theologian. We all have thoughts about God. We all think about theology, but are we good ones or are we bad ones? Do we know what God's word has to say or do we not? Uh, if we want to grow as biblical women, we need to study the scriptures to know who God is and to fall in love with him and obey him. So are you in the Bible? Practical application point. Whether you've been a Christian for a minute or 70 years, do you know how to read it? Because if not, we can give you some really great resources to help you in this area. Uh, some practical application questions to help get that going as well, to think, do I really love the Word of God? If you wake up in the morning and you have 30 minutes, you can eat breakfast or you can read the Word. What do you pick? You could do makeup or you could read the Word. Sometimes you can do both. You can have it playing while you do your makeup, but if there's a choice, what do you pick? Why do you pick it? Um, again, not that breakfast is bad and I'm wearing makeup. That's not bad either. But um, again, to show our priorities, do we value this more than even food, more than how we look? Am I preparing my, my heart more than I'm preparing my body in the morning? Um, another application. We are, as women, like we talked about in that Second Timothy verse, we are prone to deception, right? We are prone to anxiety, like Jackie was saying before. And so am I bringing my anxiety to the Lord, like it says in Philippians 3, or am I just letting it dwell to meditate, to, just constantly sitting on it? Um, there, a pastor's wife at one of our old church, churches talked about it like this. She said, so often we can get so caught up in things that aren't real, and we get so anxious, overwhelmingly anxious about things that haven't even happened yet, right? So she told this story of once she was driving in her car, and her four kids were sleeping in the back, and they almost got hit by a semi-truck. It was close, but nothing happened. Everybody was fine. They were asleep. They, did not, they didn't wake up. No one noticed, right? But immediately, her thoughts started to spiral. She thought, oh, no. Like, what if the truck had hit me? What if we'd gotten really hurt? What if the car was totaled? What if one of my kids got hurt? What if one of my kids had died? What if all of my kids had died? I was the only one to make it. I could never live, right? And I totally do that as well, where you're thinking about one thing that hasn't happened, and it spirals into this impossibly difficult situation. But again, it hasn't happened yet. A part of capturing our mind and thinking about what is true is capturing those thoughts and bringing them to the Lord in prayer, right? It is recognizing, Elizabeth Elliot says, uh, there's no grace for your imagination. If that were to happen, God would be there. God would give you the grace for that. That hasn't happened, and so we do not need to be meditating, constantly being anxious about all of these things that haven't even happened yet. So um, also, like Jackie was saying, sometimes we can be trying to wear all of the hats, right? And that leaves us exhausted. That leaves us really anxious. If we are working, a working mom, we're trying to work as if we don't have kids. We're trying to mother as if we don't work. If we're older, we're trying to look like we're younger and kind of annoyed when things don't perk up like they used to. For younger, we're trying to live with the comfort and the authority as if we were older. We are quick-witted, we're quick-tempered, don't dare tell us that we need help. You know, we're constantly anxious and overworked, trying to find our value and just being enough. Being good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, good enough helper. Um, we're anxious, are we ever going to get married? Are we going to lose our job? Are we ever going to have kids? If we have kids, we'll be a good mom. There's so many things that we can be anxious about, right? But the word of God centers us. It says God is in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. 
God uses every second of our suffering for his glory and for our good. We do not live in a world that is void of a creator who loves us intimately. We live with a God, a father, who cares for us in every detail. And so part of growing in biblical womanhood is growing in knowledge of the word, to have those scriptures ready when you start to go down that path of spiraling. Um, And a part of it also is recognizing the freedom that comes from our limitations as women. So um, in the Let Me Be a Woman book uh, by Elizabeth Elliott, she talks about how perspective matters. And she says this story. She says, But there are some to whom being a woman is nothing more than an inconvenience to be suffered because it is unavoidable to be ignored if at all possible, which is what I was doing growing up, right? I was just not thinking about it at all. Their lives are spent pining to be something else. She says, every creature of God is given something that I suppose could be an inconvenience, depending on one's perspective. And she talks about how the elephant and the mouse both could complain about their size. The turtle could complain about its shell. The bird could complain about its wings. But she says this, as the bird easily comes to terms with the necessity of bearing wings when it finds that it is in fact the wings that bear up the bird, up into the sky, into freedom, So the woman who accepts the limitations of womanhood finds in those very limitations her gifts, her special callings, wings, in fact, which bear her up into the perfect freedom, into the will of God. So again, we are going to talk through that specifically. What does that look like next time in two weeks? But for now, if you would like to grow as a biblical woman, you can start by knowing the word of God, combating anxious thoughts, dwelling on what's true. Second on your fill-in-the-blank is prioritizing God's word. Are you living for God's glory or for your own? So practical applications. How do you make decisions? How do you decide what you're going to wear in the morning, what job you're going to take, who you date, what you say, what you're, what you're going to do today? It's going to affect all of that. Are you living for your own pleasure or for God's glory? So with what we wear... First Peter says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So again, not saying that braided hair or jewelry are wrong, but is that my worth? Is that where I'm placing my value or who I date? It will affect who, what kind of companion I'm, I'm seeking Am I looking for someone who spurs me on to the Lord, who makes me look more like him? Am I just satisfied with someone who's here, who asked me out on a date, who is cute and fun and romantic? Or am I looking for something deeper, someone who will lead me to Jesus? It looks like what we say. Am I using my words to build up or to tear down? Um, What friends will I take? What promotions do I take? Will Will I take a job that removes me entirely from Christian community? All of those kind of things, it will affect everything. So am I prioritizing the word of God and am I obeying it? And finally, fulfilling God's word. Essentially being faithful where you're planted. So another way we fulfill this is through all of us have different roles in our daily lives, right? We are daughters, we're neighbors, we're coworkers, wives, mothers, daughter-in-laws, mother-in-laws, And within each of those roles comes unique blessings and opportunities, wiping dirty noses, sharing the gospel at work, not gossiping, bringing something over to a sick neighbor. It's being faithful in those small things when you think that no one notices, but the Lord notices and he cares. 
And that is part of doing unseen acts of worship to God that really do matter. So um, it even matters about coming to church and worshiping when we don't feel like it. Not listening to our emotions, but speaking the truth over into our hearts. Again, I feel like I'm quoting Elizabeth all the time, but she says it like this, very nearly, almost always, I'm afraid. When I come to church, my feelings are utmost in my mind. She's saying, I'm consumed by my thoughts. This is natural. We're human, we're selves. It takes no effort at all to feel. But worship is not a feeling. Worship is not an experience. Worship is an act, and it takes discipline. We're to worship in spirit and in truth. Never mind the feelings. She was no nonsense. Uh, We're to worship in spite of them. Finding myself scattered in all directions and in need of crawling like so many skittish calves, I kneel before the service begins and I act for, dis- for help from a vague preoccupation with myself and my own concerns and to be turned over for this short hour to God. So she's saying, again, am I prioritizing worship even when I don't feel like it, even when my emotions are screaming really loudly that I just want to sleep in? <laughs> um, okay, so the three things... If we want to grow in biblical womanhood, knowing God's word, prioritizing God's word, fulfilling God's word, we're going to break that down during discussion times. What does that look like for you personally? Um, but to reemphasize, our goal is not to create cookie-cutter versions where we all look exactly the same. God has given us different gifts. He's given us different callings and roles in these different seasons of life. The goal is not to make everyone introverted or extroverted or great cook. The goal is to say, what does the word of God have to say about this, right? So what would it look like to be women who glorify God in all we do? It would look like, we've talked about peace and rest, knowing that God is in control. I don't need to put my worth in what I do. It would look like hard work as we are being faithful to pursue the scriptures, to know what is sound doctrine, as we're discipling others, as we are being faithful where we're planted, It would look like prayer as we are rejoicing always and praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for your lives, it says in Scripture. It would look like women who use speech to build up and not to tear down, not slandering others and talking bad about someone else to make yourself feel better. It would look like strength as women who are not led and blown astray by culture but are firmly rooted in God's word. So... As we break up into groups in this next couple of minutes, the big picture goal of biblical womanhood, biblical womanhood is not the end game. The end game is faithfulness and worship to Christ. Biblical womanhood is just one of the tools and one of the ways that we can honor God with how he has made us. But our ultimate goal is worship. It's faithfulness to our creator. 